Welcome to Culture Bites, where we take culture theory and turn it into everyday insights. We're powered by Human Synergistics, and our mission is to change the world one organization at a time. We can only do that together with our amazing community, so thank you for listening. Welcome to Culture Bites. My name's Donna Gawley, and I'm joined on the show this week by Jess Keft. Hi, thanks for having me again. Yeah, so becoming a regular, Jess. I know. I know, so we're reviewing the conference. So we did the annual conference this year in Sydney and Melbourne, and we got a great crowd along to it. It must have been, I don't know, more than 1,500 people or something. Yep, yeah. So great big crowd. I, I love it. It's an event we put on every year for free for our it's not just for our creative network, actually, it's for the it's for the public in general. So we see it as part of our mission of, you know, raising awareness and capability around culture and leadership. And we always have a good spread as well of creative practitioners and people that are new to HS yeah. and just starting out their culture journey and where do you go? What do you do? Exactly. And that's part of part of what the Clippers will look at today. So Sean McCarthy is our our chairman. If you missed this year's conference, then uh, fear not. There'll be another one next year, usually around September. So we haven't got the date set just yet, but uh, no doubt we'll communicate them probably on this podcast like we did in the build-up to the last one. If you're a regular listener, we'll put it out there. But otherwise, we also video it and we've got the audio. So we're going to play Sean's presentation today. And Sean was really talking about, you know, getting culture right. What is it? How does it work? All that kind of fundamental stuff. And it's, it's a pretty funny one as well, actually, Jess. Yeah, it is. I won't give too much away just yet, but he definitely explains culture in a way that makes you understand it really well. Yeah, yeah. So a little bit rude, but it's uh, <laughs> he might have a career as a stand-up if uh, if he wants to give this consulting thing a uh, a break. So uh, this is an advisory warning for uh, anyone listening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. For any uh, parents in the car, but um, no, it's, it's it's good value. I think uh, it's Sean being Sean, which I love. So without. Any further delay, let's uh, hear from Sean around, yeah, what is culture? Sounds good. Well, you in that one o'clock meeting, and God forbid, a 12.30 meeting, so I'll try, the emphasis on the word try, <laughs> keep it brief. Uh, like Corin and Rob, at the beginning of their presentation, the first thing I did in thinking about this was to lunge for the internet and the news. So these are the typical headlines that you've seen. It took me five minutes to find these headlines. So be they cricket whether it be hospitals, whether it be the bankings, organisations. Now politicians can walk out and leave a hand grenade behind about culture. Uh, the revolving door on purple bricks, police, APRA itself, Uber, so on, CFA, Country Fire, and last but not least, councils. So you might not know it, but in 2017, the two words, toxic and culture, were the most Heard words in the media, as determined by the Oxford University. So just to give us a bit of insight to this bandwagon, if you like, that has turned the corner around organisational culture. In thinking about the presentation and what I would address this morning, where everybody has talked about getting their culture right, I want to talk about getting the entire notion of organisational culture right. Because one of the problems when bandwagons come down the road and the media jump into it and they start using words like toxic culture, et cetera, et cetera, this might sound slightly arrogant, but they may not know what they're talking about. And they are journalists, they're not culture experts. And there's very few culture experts around the world as we see. But I, I want to try and get the whole notion of culture right for you. So 
And again, and why did I choose that? I had the pleasure of reading the full Hain report on the Royal Commission of Financial Services in Australia. And one of the things that really surprised me was when asked, when the banking CEOs or the insurance finance services CEOs were asked how they are monitoring their organisational culture, every single one of them said, we're tracking our engagement scores. Now, I have to tell you that engagement is not a proxy for culture. They are two completely different phenomena, and I'll talk to that. I'm not saying don't measure engagement. Please read that in what I'm saying. But engagement is an aspect of organisational climate, which is different to organisational culture, which is why I make the comment about the news media folks there. So that's what I would like to get right in the next 20 minutes is around understanding the difference between organisational climate, organisational culture, the relevance of the two, and where they fit. So this is two very good definitions of organisational climate, from Benjamin Schneider, who's now the Emeritus University of Maryland, and Wendell French, who's uh, deceased a few years back, ex-professor at the University of Washington, a very highly regarded writer about organisational climate. You'll notice there's two different aspects of climate covered by each of these two, which is why I've chosen them. So one aspect of organisational climate is what people experience working in the organisation. So as, as Schneider says, it's the, it's the meanings people attach to the interrelated bundles of experiences. So do I believe that I'm paid enough? Do I believe that I get the training I need to do my job? Does, does my leader lead me? All, is, is the training and development fair? Is the performance appraisal system fair? All these things are not culture. They are organisational climate. The second aspect, again, that's why I chose Wendell French's famous definition, is around the affect side. It's around how people feel being part of the organisation. Do they like it? Is it a good or bad place to work? And of course, what he's talking about there is typically captured in the notion of employee engagement. So engagement is an affect aspect of organisational climate. On the other hand, organisational culture goes like this. So these are the two most prolific authors in the world today in terms of organisational culture. Edgar Schein's been writing in 1992, I think, was the first edition of his book. He's now up to his fifth edition. And uh, Dr. Robert Cook, who often speaks here, has been researching culture since 1982. So going back to the very first presentation with Corinne and Rob, Rob talked about it's like culture has been around for a long time. It has. Dr. Cook started researching it in 1981-82 in particular then in relevance to nuclear power stations and the risks that they run. And so it's not something new. It's not suddenly appeared as the media would perhaps have you think with the headlines. It's been there for a long time. And of course, as Corinne said in her part of the presentation, you cannot not have a culture in your organisation. It's always there. The question is, does it help you or it hinders you? So Rob Cook defines it as the shared norms beliefs, expectations that govern the way people approach their work and interact with each other. And the key words are the highlighted ones, beliefs, norms, and expectations. Whereas Shine takes the approach that it's the learning that the group that is a pattern of beliefs, values, behavioral norms that come to be taken for granted as basic assumptions and eventually drop out of awareness. Now, one of the things, again, that disappointed me about the Hain report and suggested they had multiple authors rather than one author is that in one part of the report, they quite accurately defined culture. They defined culture in terms of behavioural norms, which 
globally is the accepted view on what organizational culture is. It's not about training, it's not about performance appraisal. Those are cultural, as uh, climate aspects, but culture collectively is understood to be behavioral norms and expectations throughout the organization. So why I say it had multiple order, uh, authors, I suspect, is that one part of the report would have an accurate definition of organizational culture based on their research, but in another part of the report, it would say that experts disagree on what culture is. Now, I only have one word to respond to that, bullshit. <laughs> Robert Cook is the most prolific researcher on organizational culture, and Egershine is the most prolific writer on organizational culture. Do they look like different definitions? No, they don't. They both basically talk about beliefs, values, and norms. It simply depends what words you wrap around it. There is no disagreement. What that says is they didn't do their homework. Whoever wrote that didn't read what the other author was writing and didn't do their homework on the definitions of organizational culture. So I want you to see this difference. The climate is what I experience and how I feel about it. Culture, on the other hand, is how am I expected to behave in order to fit into this organization, keep myself out of trouble, succeed, etc. So here's the first metaphor. In fact, um, most of you will be familiar with this. It's, it's well replicated throughout the internet in various versions. But in 1992, when Edgar Schein wrote the first volume of his book on organizational culture and leadership, he developed this metaphor, the notion of the climate being above the line, and you can see it. So it's, it's the artifacts, it's the visible representations, it's how people feel, for instance, engagement, it's perceptions, etc. Characteristics of that are that it's easier to see, it's easier to change, it's in fact what most organizations act on, going back to the banking illustration, the financial services illustration with engagement, and it is a predictor of short-term performance. Culture, on the other hand, below the line. So it's the norms and expectations, it's the underlying beliefs and assumptions, and it's harder to see, it's harder to change. But let me tell you, and again, again this is uh, proven through research, it is a better predictor than organizational climate for long-term performance. So you, the top part is a predictor of short-term, the bottom part predictor of longer-term. And I'll give you an illustration of that very shortly. The what and the why. Now, one of the problems with that metaphor that Shine struggled with is that it's static. You can't change that iceberg that's under the water. But we know you can change culture. I mean, you've seen brilliant illustrations of it here today. So human synergistics began working with Edgar Shine about five or six years ago. And collectively, this particular metaphor has now been published in the latest edition of his book in 2017. It's not quite so graphically beautiful, perhaps. And the grungy stuff down the bottom is the whole point. So there's the notion of the espoused values with the lily farmer saying, this pond uses only the finest organic fertilizer. So he is saying he really wants to grow great lilies. He's identified a target market for organic growth, et cetera, et cetera. And if you look at the lilies, which is the climate, the observable current state, current performance, they look pretty good. But underneath, there's all this stuff that's growing on the bottom of the river, at the bottom of the lake, that the farmer cannot see. So for the moment, in terms of the current state, the lilies look pretty good. But in the future, something's going to go wrong with those lilies because he's not attending because he can't see and hasn't recognized the grungy stuff down the bottom that's going to affect perhaps next year or the year after that in terms of lilies. 
Let me give you a, a practical illustration of that. Uh, hands up if you've heard of Enron. Just to, yeah, okay. So it, it, it's relevant enough to use as an example. An organization that in the mid to late 1990s, uh, people were writing books about because they were so incredibly successful. In one of those books, the executive group were referred to as the brightest guys in the room, and they were pretty sharp. And they had undertaken numerous surveys as part of their growth and development as a corporation, focusing on climate. So they'd done various different uh, engagement surveys and drivers of engagements and things like that. And again, I'm not saying that's not the right thing to do. It is the right thing to do. But by about 98, 99, I can't remember the detail, they decided they'd have a look at culture. So they asked us to come in and do a culture survey. It wasn't for the entire organization. It was for one of the key parts of it. And I happened to be in the US when it was scheduled to be delivered in terms of the results in California in one of their satellite offices as I was passing through. So I was asked to come and join our then HS CEO in that presentation. Let me tell you this in highly scientific words. They had the culture from hell. And if you know the story, you'll know where I'm going with it. Their culture was extraordinarily defensive. If you thought there was a lot of green and red, I think it was one of the Fraser Properties early profiles. There's nothing on what Enron had. I mean, we didn't have enough percentiles for it to register on. <laughs> it was, for those unfamiliar with the stuff, it was extraordinarily aggressive defensive and very passive defensive and not, didn't challenge the ink jets for the blue stuff on the printer very much at all. When we put their results up, we were booed, literally. <laughs> you know? The brightest guys in the room were there and we were told that clearly our survey was a load of crap and that they had done all these other surveys. I mean, they had incredibly high engagement. I mean, there's the famous illustration of industrial level workers, manual labor workers, would wear their overalls with the Enron sign on it to the shopping mall on a Saturday. They were so proud of working with that company. So all that stuff looked very positive, but the culture was not. So we literally got fired. We got told to take our survey and go shove it, which we did. We shoved it in the briefcase and trotted off back to Michigan at that stage. So wind the clock forward to, I think from memory it was 2001, and I'm reading the newspaper, and the CFO and the CEO and the chairman of the board have been convicted of fraudulent accounting practices. The company has now gone bankrupt, and the only scientific reaction I could have on reading that was, well, fuck you. <laughs> so it's a, it's a very good... It's a very good illustration of that stuff at the bottom of the lake, right? If you, if, you, if you don't get your head around what's down the bottom of that lake, it will make you suffer at some stage in the future. So, and of course, chaos theory says the point at which everything seems to be going absolutely swimmingly is the point at which you're at most at risk of disaster. And that's exactly where they were. So in order to measure culture, you need to be able to operationally define it. So we go back to those definitions and the use of the words norms, beliefs, and expectations. So this is a, a slide, you can read it behind me, about behavioral norms. And if we can define culture in terms of norms, we can now measure it. So again, people talk about norms as if they're some airy-fairy kind of thing. Our life is ruled by social norms. Let me give you an illustration of a very simple social norm. 
For some reason or other, it is an expectation of each of us that we do not fart in public. <laughs> that is a social norm. If you do do it, it's unexpect uh, unacceptable. Somebody will frown at you. Right? <laughs> but it is a, a social norm. It's a very good illustration of a social norm. So we can now measure to what extent are you implicitly or explicitly required to not fart in public. <laughs> so we can now measure those norms. That's what we do. But you think about, and again, this is the interesting thing about norms. Why do they exist? Why do we ban farting in public? I mean, you're allowed to cough in public. <laughs> you're allowed to sneeze in public but you're not allowed to fart in public. <laughs> Which should be more acceptable because when somebody sneezes, somebody else catches cold. <laughs> but to my knowledge, nobody's caught diarrhea from somebody else farting. <laughs> so again, given the layout of the room, another very simple social norm, is when you come into an auditorium like this and there's somebody already sitting in the row, you generally leave a seat between you. You don't sit right next to them. That's a social norm. Now, why do we do that? It's about personal space and that kind of stuff. Those are social norms. So we can now define those norms in, in very simple terms and to what extent are people implicitly or explicitly required to in this case, some definitions around the circumplex that DB took you through at the very beginning of the session. So we can determine to what extent are people encouraged, expected to do those blue things, do those green things, do those red things. And that then has implications for the long-term effectiveness of your organisation. Obviously, there's many more items and terms measured than those, but that's designed to be a summary. So again, in thinking about this confusion that sits out there, in relationship to the difference between organisational climate and organisational culture, I thought I'd, I'd semi-finish one last point by going through what each of these clusters mean for the organisation in terms of practical outcomes. So how do people describe dealing with the organisation, whether they're a customer or a supplier? So they would use words like professional for the constructive organisation. For the passive defensive, they're terribly bureaucratic and for the aggressive defensive, they're somewhat pushy. How would people describe working in the organisation? Challenging, constraining, demanding. This is where words become important, which I chose these words. Demanding and challenging are two very, very different words. So it's not cruisy, it's not cushy, it is demanding. It is challenging, but it's not demanding. So what's the main currency that people might collect to help them succeed in the organisation? In a constructive culture, it's about what you've achieved. In a passive defensive culture, it's around information and maintaining that information closely to your chest. In an aggressive defensive organisation, it's about power. And the golden rule in the organisation, do well, work well with others. In a passive defensive, stay out of trouble. In an aggressive defensive, always look like you're on top of everything. Too many people laughing apparently have experienced that. <laughs> So here we get to some really important ones in light of these toxic culture headlines. How do employees deal with a moral dilemma? So here I am, I'm asked to do something that I'm not quite sure I should be doing. So in a constructive organisation, there'll be a process, name it and be clear about it and deal with it. In a passive defensive, it's like it's just all too hard. 
and an aggressive defence of the end does justify the means. How the organisation deals with interpersonal conflict, so constructive conversations versus avoid it and paper over it, or tough it out, you know, big boys play here kind of stuff. How do we deal with inappropriate behaviour, whether it's harassment or bullying or the stuff that's so often associated with a toxic culture? Again, there's a clear process in the achievement organisation. In the passive organisations, ignore it and hope it'll go away. And in the aggressive defensive organisations, hide it and deny it. And what drives ethical behaviour in the organisations is principal morality versus obedience to rules versus avoidance of punishment. Let me tell you that last line is what worries me about the outcome from the Financial Services Royal Commission, because it is not driving principled morality, it's driving avoidance of punishment and obedience to rules, neither of which lead to significant culture change. So how does the organisation deal with change, proactive planning versus inactive or reactive? And I mean, if you, if you think about this last session, the IBMers, wouldn't it be great if people called themselves HSs or IBMers is just amazing. But think about the disruption that that organisation experienced that David talked about. It's quite extraordinary. And it's a testament to the strength of that organisation that they rode through that. How they respond to external threat. We've got a plan, hunker down and wait it out. Fantastic, another crisis. Yippee. <laughs> Performance over time, we've used these terms before. Uh, high performance versus vulnerability or mediocrity and volatility crisis, and what will get, seeing I started with the media, I thought, well, what will get them into the media? So for the constructive organisation, it will be because they've got some sort of award on innovation or whatever. They'll be in the news media for non-responsive service and, and perhaps allowing poor behaviour to happen. Like where I live, just north of Wellington, one of the councillors, as in the, the regional council, was convicted of inappropriately touching female employees, to cut a long story short. And what was so desperately sad was that when, you know, finally one person blew the whistle and he went to court and he was found guilty, that the, the gossip back in the organisation was, but he's been doing it for years. Isn't that terrible? Absolutely appalling. Poor practices and stressed people and allowing poor behaviour for the aggressive defensive. So... As I said, not quite the last point, because the important thing is we have the evidence. We have the evidence that when organisations work proactively on their culture, as you've seen some illustrations this morning, then it does lead to greater performance. And we've talked at previous conferences about how and why that happens. And last and not least, the leadership culture performance connection. So we heard a lot about leadership from Rana. She talked about the importance of leadership, the impact of leaders, and Rob talked about leadership as part of their catching the waves. We heard right through to the very end of the sessions, in fact, references to the importance of those in leadership roles. So if you're working at the leadership level, look to extend that into the culture level. If you're working in the cultural level, make sure you work on the leadership stuff. And it is designed as a self-reinforcing systems diagram. So the culture is reflective of the leadership, which is reflective of the culture, and so on and so forth. So that's it from me for 2019. Thank you very much. So what do you think about that, Jess? I love it. I love hearing Sean talk. I've seen him now present multiple times and he just always has a way of explaining things in a way that you're going to get sort of in layman's terms, you know, what is culture. He's, he just explains that really well. 
And anyone that uses a fart analogy to explain <laughs> social behaviours is pretty all right by my terms. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it was a good point, actually, around sneezing and stuff. Like, yeah, why is that? That that's okay, but actually it carries more more risk or whatever you want to call it. But uh, that's socially acceptable, right? And that is culture. That's something we've determined is all right. But other things, not all right. <laughs> so it's funny, you know, there's, well, when you start thinking about that, you start picking up cues like that everywhere, right? Like, why is this thing... That's not allowed, but this other thing that's very similar or something is. Now, really fascinating. I love, yeah, he puts it in simple language that we can understand to, to start noticing it. So it's a, it's a good, good little intro there, and, and I hope you had a few laughs as well while you're listening. Definitely did. So, uh, yeah, so Sean always has great presentations. We've got, uh, we've got his slides up on the website as well. If you want to download them, check out the, the notes in this podcast episode. And there'll be a link there to, to go through and be able to download those as well. We've also got links to some of Sean's other presentations from previous years, which are really interesting. So go have a look. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got a, lots of videos from past conferences on the website too. So check it all out. All right. Thanks for your time today, Jess. Thanks so much, Tom. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture Bites. If you enjoy the show, remember to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, Leave us a review. It helps other people to find the show. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, email podcast at human-synergistics.com.au. We'd love to answer it. This podcast is copyrighted by Human Synergistics Australia, all rights reserved. To learn more about what we do, visit human-synergistics.com.au.